Everybody listening should know that right now, Republican lawmakers in 34 states across the country have introduced 81 anti-protest bills. That's more than twice as many proposals than any other year in American history. Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, Social Media Director at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Jerry Keith Gaynor, Managing Editor at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, how are we still paying for the lies of white history? G, tell me what is on your mind? So a lot has been uh, being reported about Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. She is representing the state of Georgia and she is full of controversy. And the most recent one is that she compared the, the mask mandate of the, during the pandemic to the Holocaust. And obviously this has uh, caused a lot of outrage amongst not just Jews, but everyone, because we're like, why is a sitting Congresswoman um, making such uh, anti-Semitic uh, comparisons. And it really frustrates me that Republicans will not denounce her. They stripped away her committees when she made uh, a series of comments. She called for the, essentially the death of her own colleagues before she was elected to Congress. She's pushed out conspiracy theories about the Parkland shooting. She's spewed uh, these white nationalist QAnon conspiracies. And she's only been rewarded since being stripped from her committee. She continues to get a lot of media publicity. Um, but more importantly, uh, Kevin McCarthy, who is the, the House leader, uh, he did say that, I think he called it, um, he, he denounced it in some way, I forget the, the verbiage that he used, but he kind of, it was in a very like, like milk toast way. It was just, they, they're so scared to go against her. And she's a freshman Congresswoman. I remember what, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had to endure when she first got elected to Congress in 2018, and Republicans were were incensed over her, and she was just speaking about policy. She was just sharing her policy positions and giving ideas. She wasn't uh, pushing out conspiracy theories about the Holocaust or spewing, spewing racist ideologies, um, and it's a very different uh, approach when their own freshman congresswoman comes into play and it's very disturbing because the Republican Party is really morphing into um, Trump's party and I think that the model that Donald Trump has modeled as a president as a politician I should say is now taking form in Congress and that is dangerous there was once a time where we believed or we could trust that people elected elected to Congress are upstanding responsible people that we can trust them uh, representing our districts, representing our country, um, and and really shaping policy that helps people. And you know, whether you're a conservative, whether you're a liberal, uh, we can all debate the policy. But when you have a congresswoman in Congress spewing hatred and lies, and it really it disturbs me because we know that she was very attached to that QAnon conspiracy uh, movement on the internet. And there's a lot of, it's some dark stuff on the internet from that from that crowd. And she has denounced QAnons, you know, because she kind of has to. But in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, what dog whistle is she putting out there to these followers on the internet? And it's really important that the Republican Party take a stand. And I know that they are scared to go against her because going against her is going against what they see as Trump's base. 
allegedly President, former President Donald Trump might run again in 2024. And even if he doesn't, his words don't matter. When he speaks out, his, his supporters, they listen. And they don't want to lose in the primaries. I get it from a political standpoint, but it gets to a point where you have to choose the people. The people are the ones who run the country over politics and over power. She is, she's unhinged and she feels emboldened and she feels powerful right now. And I'm, I'm just scared of what else could happen if we continue to let her get away, not with just her statements, but just her very uh, person in Congress is just very dangerous. Uh, my thoughts are on <laughs> one Megan McCain. So Megan McCain had herself a nice little moment um, earlier this week where she was talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene and um, then turned her venom over to the squad, you know? So was that Ayanna Presley, AOC, uh, Ilhan Omar, you know, the good ones <laughs> in terms of the young progressive Democrats uh, and Megan starts going into this whole rant about like, she's like, well, you know, first off, I have to, I have to practice this with like, I can't stand Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like, I think she's terrible. Great. Fine. Whatever. And then proceeds to go ahead and defend the broad. And <laughs> then says, you know, if Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be the face of the Republican Party, then, you know, the swan is the face of the Democratic Party and blah, 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 bunch of BS and my father, whatever. So she's just a rude and, and brash and abrasive and, and really annoying uh, woman just to begin with, to everyone. She, she's an equal opportunity line stepper. However, I feel as though watching her, she, fit, she gets a little too comfortable getting like turning on the spice, like getting a little jalapeno when it comes to any of her black and brown uh, co-hosts which is kind of like what Sharon Osbourne did, you know, when she was on the talk with Cheryl and, you know, and Elaine and, and, and all of that. And so Whoopi, who is the head of this show and Whoopi's like, all right, well, listen, we gotta, we gotta pay these bills, ad break. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna stop you right there, Megan. We're gonna come back and talk to you after commercial. And as Megan is just over here, just running, just yapping and flapping her thin lips, and then she gets cut off, and then she yells at Whoopi, and why are you cutting me off? <laughs> to the point where Whoopi has to go, because we have to take a break, Megan. Why do you think I'm cutting you off? First off, I don't appreciate you having to let like Whoopi, this is not the first time where Whoopi has had to come out of pocket, okay? This is not the first time where Whoopi has had to take a moment and go, who is this broad talking to? It is, it is insane at this point in time. And I'm actually really kind of irritated by it. Megan McCain needs to be off, off television. I take her back to Fox. But anywho, let's talk about the show this week. Uh, and, you know, recently the conversation surrounding Confederate monuments and questioning their place in certain towns has grown louder. In the U.S., Confederate monuments are spread across southern states. In fact, of the more than 1,500 public monuments and memorials to the Confederacy, more than 700 are monuments and statues. This week, we are acknowledging the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. In 1921, the thriving Tulsa community of Black Wall Street was burned down and many of its residents were killed in the process. 
The conversation about how we can finally right the wrongs of history is happening now more than ever. And today we will be joined by our SVP, Geraldine Mariba and Camille Bennett to discuss how we can make strides to do so. Let's get into it. So Shauna, uh, it's been 100 years since the Tulsa massacre. And I feel like there's still so much that we don't know about that day. There was a thriving black community in Greenwood. Um, this is post-Civil War. So post-slavery, black people are thriving and built, have their own community. They called it the Black Wall Street. Um, families were happy. And they were, you know, they were, some of them were wealthy. And it was completely destroyed by white terrorists. It was burned and bombed from planes. And I think many Black Americans might know generally what it was about. But when you look at the history, what is recorded, there are so many discrepancies about how many black lives were really lost. I think I read somewhere that it was about 36 people recorded died. Now we know more than 36 people were killed, right? Um, it is reported to be thousands of black people killed in this massacre. And like most things that happen in America, when there is black genocide, black massacre, uh, white people get to have the power to, to determine uh, what goes in the history books, what information is recorded. And just recently, we saw two survivors of the Tulsa massacre go to Washington for the very first time for a hearing before Congress to not only tell what they experienced, this, this heartbreaking experience, this trauma that they experienced, uh, but also demanding for justice because it, they were not repaid for what they, what they lost. It was just burned down. And there's even a museum for the Tulsa massacre, which is arguably making money for the city. And I question whether that money is going toward the people and descendants of the victims. And we always move in America, they, we move so quickly to, um, to kind of tie things up in a, a nice bow, but we don't address the actual harm that was made. And there's so much to, to discuss about reparations uh, for not just the victims of Tulsa, but for all Black Americans and descendants of slavery and the many other massacres that occurred in America. Uh, but Sean, I want to ask you, why is it so important that we not only acknowledge this, this tragedy 100 years later, but what kind of impact does it have today? Um, I think you have to take a moment and acknowledge things like the Tulsa Race Massacre, like the many massacres that have occurred across this country that so we there's so many that we don't know about. There's so many that there that are not spoken about. Um, let's be very clear. There are people who have lived their entire born and raised their entire lives in Tulsa who had no idea that the Tulsa Race Massacre happened because it's not something that's like mandated in their, their school systems to talk about. The media would have you believe that we are just shiftless, <laughs> no count Negroes who haven't done nothing, who ain't been about nothing and never wanted to go do da 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 unless they're hooping or rapping, like period. 
Y'all sit up here and you love to tell us, well, if you don't like it, go back to Africa or wherever the hell else. And you know what would happen? Wakanda would happen. And we and you got a glimpse of Wakanda g- given Tulsa and the and Black Wall Street. And what were the Negroes doing? Thriving. I think it's it's also just the messaging of for Black people today. Just know. Black girl magic, black excellence, black boy joy, that has always been a thing. It has always been a thing. And don't let these white folks convince you of anything else. Um, so transitioning a little bit, Jaren, what do you think? Do you is there any connection between the Tulsa massacre and you know the recent rioting that has been taking place in cities across the country, specifically when it comes to like communities of color fed up <laughs> with racism? Absolutely. I think that. Black Americans are experiencing PTSD. And so we are the descendants of of people who have been brutalized and traumatized generation after generation. And so even if you're not a direct descendant of Tulsa, you know, we are all descendants of of white supremacy and the, the, the evils that it has inflicted on us. And it's heartbreaking because no matter how much we yell out what we experience as Black Americans, there's always an impediment to progress, to equality, for liberation. And it really angers me that 100 years later, the the descendants of Tulsa still don't have peace. And we're at an inflection moment right now in this country. Because while we don't have full justice, we're still trying to get the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed, we're trying to get HR 40 passed, which would not provide reparations for Black Americans, but would just create a commission to study the possibility of reparations. And in that bill also includes a commission for, for, for Tulsa. And I think a lot of people don't know that. And But yet, these important bills, especially HR 40, um, is just sitting. And we don't know when, if ever, in this session of Congress, we will see that even voted on, let alone be passed. And so here we are, Black America, waiting for progress, waiting for for justice. And I think that this 100-year anniversary is an opportunity for us to remember, but also continue to take action. I think it is incredibly important for us to acknowledge this history and get used to it. We're going to keep talking about it. We're going to keep protesting. We're going to keep hitting these streets because you know what? The progress that is made will only benefit y'all in the long run. That's all. Now we are joined by Geraldine Mariba, the Senior Vice President of The Griot and Griot TV. And she's also the podcast host of the Southern Poverty Law Center podcast, Sounds Like Hate. Each episode works to highlight communities grappling with hate and searching for solutions. Recent episodes of Sounds Like Hate focus specifically on Confederate monuments uncovering its racial history and the need to have them removed. Along with Geraldine, we will be speaking with Camille Bennett, founder of Project Say Something, and she's featured in several episodes of Sounds Like Hate, where her journey of fighting to remove a Confederate monument in front of a local courthouse is chronicled. Geraldine, Camille, welcome to Dear Culture. So I want to start this conversation talking about Confederate monuments, because on the list of racist things to tackle socially and politically in America, 
why do you think the issue of Confederate monuments is something that we should be focused on and, and why that's important? So we live, live in the South, Alabama, that's where I live. And imagine going to pay your taxes, going to do your business and having to look at a statue that was literally erected to intimidate black people for no other reason than that. People wanna make it fancy. They wanna make it about you know, states rights and this historical conversation. The civil war was about slavery. They were fighting to own us. And that's a slap in the face that we just can no longer live with. And, and the other thing that we have to acknowledge is not only is it something that's intended to terrorize and intimidate us in the places where we live and, and bring our kids you know, to school, the school names of schools, where we go and pay our taxes, where we pay our bills, but it also represents a false history, like an entirely false, wrong history. It's all lies. You know, rather than celebrating this lost cause, um, we should allow historians to tell the truth. And the truth is a fact. The truth is 200,000 black men and some women fought in the struggle. They fought for their freedom and they earned it by bravery and sacrifice. And it was done through the Emancipation Proclamation. They stepped forward and volunteered to fight for their freedom. That's not the story that's told when you look at these Confederate monuments. We have to correct history. They joined the union effort and ultimately saved America. And don't, don't be mistaken, the Confederate side of the Civil War was not about saving their property. It was, it, what it was about was slavery and states' right. And the one, there were many states' rights. The one states' right they were fighting for was to keep slaves in bondage. And you know, people will say, well, my ancestors didn't own slaves. If your ancestors fought, they were supporting the per perpetuation of slavery. It was an economic system. It was all connected. They were fighting for their jobs and their jobs were somehow connected in the cycle of slavery. Um, you know, Camille, you said just the fact that we even have to live with them. I know for me, um, for work uh, early last year, even having to go to Daytona for NASCAR I was covering like the, the NASCAR 500 or something like that and so many Confederate flags and don't tread on me things and a lot of just white supremacist paraphernalia all around. And I remember distinctly, like instantly, my black body feeling like I am not safe. So I need to make sure, like is Daytona a sundown town? Maybe I should have done my research. Like this is something that is, it's so serious and it's so real, um, but, you know, let's talk about uh, a preview clip um, from one of Geraldine's uh, podcast episodes. So in the preview clip for the episode titled Monumental Problems, a white daughter and mother in Texas clash over lost cause lies as they examine their history of their own relatives who fought on the Confederate side of the Civil War. I remember in Texas history class, they included a portion of the constitution and they failed to include any portion that had any mention of slaves or slavery in it. There is a whole section, article eight on slaves that they just completely failed to acknowledge in my Texas history class. 
Were you aware of this? Jordan, I don't know. I mean, when I was in college, that was 30 years ago, so. I mean, yeah, you were in college 30 years ago, but this was written in 1861. Okay. I'm just saying, I'm finding it, I'm finding it real hard and having a hard time with being lied to. Okay, but regardless, that still doesn't mean that every person that fought in the Civil War on the Confederate side, that that's the only reason that they were fighting or that that's even a reason that they were fighting. I still think you're oversimplifying everything. And how do you know how they felt? You don't. You cannot make it seem as if what happened 150 years ago is happening right now, that it's the, the, that this is happening to you. This didn't happen to you. Well, I mean, one of the reasons that I did this project and wanted to do this was I wanted to research to learn about our family. Does it knowing the truth about this person, what we know, give us more humility and make us stronger? I Again, I, I am proud that he had the guts and the just the honor to to you know fight for something that he believed in which to me was just his family his property his new country his new state because he had just come here a few years before i just feel like that the education system in texas our family that people in texas for the most part are holding on to a just a warped history Okay, like I said, then do something about it. So are we done? Yes, we're done. Uh, I'm, I'm a little, oh, oof, I'm a little wow. speechless. <laughs> uh, so we just overheard Jordan confronting her mother about discovering her family's very racist history uh, and her mother being pretty deliberately obtuse. Um, Geraldine, tell us, how did this even come about? Like, give us a little... Ooh, a little history on this people, on these people's history, please. Yeah, I mean, let me just start by saying it was really brave of Jordan to record these conversations. It was really brave of her, not because only because it's public and everybody's going to hear what happened in her own family and, and these conversations, but because it's her family. You know, this is her mother. This is her mother for life. So the reason why it was important to us to include these kinds of conversations is so the rest of America who might not be privy to what happens at dinner tables or in private can hear these conversations because these conversations are happening. Certainly started to peak when Trump went into office because of that administration and what they stood for. What Jordan did by allowing us to follow her exploration was brave. But here's the reality. So Jordan is a producer um, on Sounds Like Hate. And, and, and the arguments that defend um, white supremacy are endless. She wanted to figure out why her relatives joined the Confederate side. And you know, the arguments are they were protecting their property. It's not about slavery and so on. And, and she it's, it falsely reframes the original motivations for the war. What she's trying to do is find out anything she could to help her try to deal with the shame she feels of having relatives who fought on the Confederate side. 
And, and what she found out is like, she, she actually thought that they were enlisted, that maybe they didn't have a choice. And then when she got their records, she had three different relatives. And when she got their records, what she discovered was they didn't, they, they enlisted, they volunteered before there was forced enlistment. So they actually volunteered. They walked from their town in Hill County, Texas to San Antonio miles so they could join the Confederate side. And, and in opening up this conversation with her family, she opened a wound and they did not react favorably. But we have to have these conversations. They have to have these conversations. Uh, and Camille, this question is for you because in the clip you said that we're fighting patriarchy and we're fighting racism at the same time. And I would love for you to speak to the intersectionality of this work that you're doing, um, because I think that the womanhood in all of this is also really important to highlight. When I talk about the ways we have to dismantle patriarchy, so when you look at Alabama as a whole and the people that are on the front lines organizing, uh, protesting, um, just on a daily basis, really facing the hate and dismantling the hate with our bare hands. So this is not like uh, talking about it or having conversations. This is literally getting outside, getting in the face of KKK with hoods on and, and saying, what you got? And these are women, these are black women. Historically um, in Alabama, black women are erased. So you think about Joanne Robinson um, who, photocopied 52,000 pamphlets and 300 women went out at Montgomery and handed them out for the, to organize the Montgomery bus boycott. But when you think about who was given credit, Mark, Martin Luther King, she was completely erased. And so it, it's always a battle uh, to, to fight the violence of patriarchy because it's our everyday experience. As women, not only are we faced with uh, facing white supremacy, I mean, they, the only anti-protest bill in Alabama was written about us, our movement, the movement that I founded, um, SB 152. So they, they're they trying to take away our right to protest. Uh, when I think about the, the violence I've, I've faced from our Secretary of State, John Merrill, who recently got busted with his mistress, uh, who said he was racist. Um, but we, we were on the front lines um, oftentimes unprotected, oftentimes not protected by men who are in, in some ways uh, on the side of white supremacy because they're trying to protect their patriarchy. It's a complicated conversation, but it's our experience. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say, I, I'd like to add some specificity to what Camille's saying. She mentions the anti-protest bill in her state in Alabama. You should know, everybody listening should know that right now, Republican lawmakers in 34 states across the country have introduced 81 anti-protest bills. That's more than twice as many proposals than any other year in American history. And don't be mistaken, the idea of an anti-protest bill is to suppress freedom. It is designed to suppress our freedom to express ourselves and the more that these bills pass, the closer we come to a fascist state. This is incredibly important. These bills have to be stopped. Yeah, and I think it just, and if anything, Geraldine, I think it speaks to the power of protest 
And that's what they're so afraid of because the more that we're out here in these streets, the more that we, again, and we, and I'm not surprised of the 81 bills because uh, I think we, as a matter of fact, we just covered it this week um, on the Griot's Instagram page of like, we saw last year, not just national protests around George Floyd's death. There were international movements born out of that situation to see all of these pro, like there was over a hundred days of endless protesting. I mean, it didn't matter what time and any kind of protesting here in New York, there were bicycle protests and, and here I am stuck in the city because I can't get out because there's, there's a, a row of, of, of cyclists who are talking about Black Lives Matter. That It was in Belgium, in Germany, in South Africa, Portugal, Hong Kong, in Tokyo, like places that you would never expect. Hell, Jaren, we just talked about it. We had the Amish at one point. <laughs> the Amish were out here protesting. I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not surprised to hear how devious <laughs> the GOP is trying to move in order to make sure that change can't happen. But I think if anything, that should be even more of a, of a spur on for the rest of us of like, the amount of power that we have, they are they are acutely aware how much power we have. Right, and so it's an attempt to silence us, but it's not just bills about protesting that they're trying to silence us with that. And Camille can speak to this, but they've got bills to try and prevent anybody from removing Confederate monuments across the country. I mean, Camille, tell them about the one in your own state. Alabama tried to be proactive and really drafted the Memorial Preservation Act bill. Uh, that came shortly after Charlottesville. And fun fact, the League of the South is actually a few minutes away from my house. And that's one of the organizations that, that was at Charlottesville. So Alabama decided to draft a bill and it actually passed to protect Confederate monuments. Um, it's the Memorial Preservation Act. And what this bill says is if a, if a monument's been up for over 40 years, you cannot remove it. You cannot alter it in any way. You cannot do anything to it. Um, and, and, and the penalty is if you remove it, you have to pay a fine of $25,000 which really isn't that much, but um, the, there, there's so much bureaucracy depending on the, the, the city you live in to even get that done, that it becomes almost impossible in some areas. And, and in Camille's jurisdiction, it's the impossibility is they've actually criminalized it. So you can pay a $25,000 fine and move it, except the police have erected barriers and they've said, if you cross the barrier, you're committing a crime. So we we actually struck that down. Oh, you did. So we had our yeah, we did. We had our attorney um, challenge, and, and he was such a coward, right? One 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 letter from an attorney folded. They were gone the next day. But again, um, it then there became another issue, right? There's an injunction that local citizens that don't even live in our city file to, to keep us from removing the monument. So there are all these barriers. Um, and what it comes down to is just a, a blatant disrespect for black people, de dehumanization of black people, and then white people protecting white supremacy in Alabama. So I guess my next question then would be, what is the actual process for removing a monument? Like who makes that call? What's the, the best case scenario? Like, what does it look like from start to finish? I don't know if you can tell me that, Camille. <laughs> I can tell you, I can tell you what it looks like for us. So Florence, Alabama, when people think Alabama, they think of like 
Birmingham, Montgomery, Selma, all of the, the birth of the civil rights movement, but I'm all the way up north. So that means there was no history of resistance. There's never been a sit-in, there's never been a protest, there's never been any resistance. That is because of demographics, right? We make up 20%, less than 20% of the city. And then also because of the, the uh, strong concentration of white nationalism in North Alabama. Again, the KKK was headquartered here for 10 years. So that's like, and that's in the 80s. So that's not so long ago, right? Um, so for us, it became the first step was to contextualize the monument. No one knows it's racist. We going to school, getting all the information from the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Those are the original Karens that came in and made sure that history was revised in the way that they see, they fit, saw fit and they did it for spite. And they, st and they still hold uh, the power, right? They still, are, they still hold uh, the, the, the ability to say whether or not a monument stays or goes. They still own many of these monuments. So they did a number on Alabama. So our first step was really contextualizing the monument, talking to the community, having panel discussions and saying, hey, y'all, guess what is racist? Um, we started off with like a really unique proposal. Dred Scott actually lived here for 10 years. Um, and his case, many historians say, was the reason the Civil War was actually sparked in the first place. Uh, when he lost um, his case, which was considered one of the worst cases in the worst case in history in the Supreme Court, he was struck down and then abolitionists went nuts and that's what started the Civil War a few, few years later. Um, so anyway, we came out and we said, you know what, Dred Scott lived here, perfect way to contextualize this monument. Hey y'all, can we erect a monument of Dred Scott and his wife right next to it since we can't move it or touch it? We, we campaigned for that for two to three years and then Floyd happened and uh, Birmingham tore their monument down. Many people put pressure on us. That's Birmingham, 70% black. We're up here, that's not gonna work for us. Um, so it became, what do we do? And protesting itself was a revolutionary act for us. Uh, we organized sustained protests. We protested for, nine, for 29 weeks, five days a week. Um, and it's still up. But what that protest did do was kick a hotbed of white supremacy. We had ministers, politicians, healthcare professionals, all organizing and forming movements to oppose our movements. And they became counter protesters and antagonists. So that's, th those are some of our experience. But when you talk about how to get it done, it's trial and error, it's never giving up, it's going to city council meetings, finding out who has the power and then really playing chess with them and um, making sure that you can, can continue to advocate for its removal. For us, we're at a point where we have an injunction now. We also have an anti-protest bill against us. We also have a mayor that's afraid to get arrested. So our, our newest proposal is, since you're so scared to remove the monument, no one wants to get arrested, will you erect a plaque? in front of the monument that denounces it, right? So it sits on county property. Our county commissioners are super duper racist, like the, they the real deal. And so our city is a little more progressive. And so they're kind of hiding behind all of these excuses. And we're saying, okay, it's still in your city, 
put this plaque up. And so recently we've made some traction with that. It looks like they may be going for that. Some people say, you know, okay, so why do you have to go through all this? And our response is, well, you can come and move the monument because it's a felony here and we're not gonna be martyrs, right? Do I have to be a martyr <laughs> too? We own businesses, we have lives, we have jobs, we have careers, we're happy people. So, you know, now we gotta go remove the monument and get 15 years, I don't think so. So we're gonna go through this, navigate this political process. We will litigate, we will, we will um, the National Lawyers Guild is actually uh, gonna take on our case and help us fight the Memorial Preservation Act. So in the fall, you should see a complaint, but we'll keep going. Um, but it's not as simple as just getting angry and ripping it down. It is a political process that takes patience and strategy. Wow, wow. The work that you are doing, Camille, is just phenomenal. Um, my last question to you is, once the Confederate monuments are taken down, then what? What is the next stage? Um, and what goes, what maybe replaces these monuments when they're taken down? Honey, they can put some flowers up or whatever it is they want to do. We have so much more to do in Alabama. Again, um, white nationalism and white supremacy is literally embedded in our political framework. Our Secretary of State just got busted in a sex scandal and his, his mistress literally said, and I want y'all to know, he's really bad racist. Though that's a quote. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we, we have Mo Brooks, who was, is a congressman who helped make sure that the insurrection happened at our nation's capital. We had our attorney, Steve Marshall, who, who sent buses of people out there. This is where we live. So we have tons to do when it comes to just dismantling the white supremacy that exists within our political framework. And people always make this statement, like, well, why don't you just run for office? Well, yeah. It, 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 that's one way to attack it, right? But as Stacey Abrams taught us, it starts on the ground. So we really have to twell this land and make sure that people understand that we mean business and we want them out. Not to mention um, the violence, the patriarchal violence that black women experience just giving birth in Alabama, right? Um, we have a, a horrible maternal uh, death rate and infant mortality rate. So one thing that we've been active about is making sure we have black doulas in our communities, um, making sure that people have anti-racism training. That is not just for white people. Black people need to know critical race theory and be able to name their pain. If you can name it, you can dismantle it. So there's plenty of work to do once it's down. I can't wait till it's down so we can move on. But until then, we have to do both and. And, and really, really fast, also absolutely critical that we correct history. The Confederate Army supported secession from America. You know what that means? That means they are the original domestic terrorists. They were treasonous. We need to correct our American history. We have to take these monuments down. We've got to change it in schools. We've got to put up true um, monuments that represent really what's happened in a transparent way. And, and, and that is like number one. Oh my goodness. And Camille, you know, you said we have to teach critical race theory, not just for, you know, to give white folks a clue, but for also for black people and being able to name their pain. And it brought back to me a quote by, you know, the late great Zora Neale Hurston, one of my favorite writers, like, if you are silent about your pain, 
they will kill you and say that you enjoyed it. Like, so let, let's, let's be loud <laughs> and a little bit rowdy. Uh, but yes, now that we've unpacked the reasons removing these monuments are so necessary, let's work to ensure that that fight continues. To listen and learn more, please uh, subscribe to the Sounds Like Hate podcast available on all streaming platforms. Geraldine, Camille, thank you so much for joining us. And Camille, please, please promise us that you will come back to Dear Culture. It was a joy having you. Look forward to it. Please have me back. We want to remind our listeners to support your local Black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is Project Say Something. Camille Bennett founded Project Say Something in December 2014, a nonprofit organization with a mission to confront white supremacy and massage noir through Black history using direct action, community empowerment, education, and civic engagement to reconcile the past with the present. Project Say Something, initially a local grassroots effort, mobilized regionally and nationally through coalition building, sustained protests, and advocacy for the political power and humanization of Black Alabamians. Their mission is to confront racial injustice through Black history by using communication, education, and community empowerment to reconcile the past with the present. To get involved, visit their website at www.projectsaysomething.org. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments. We love those to podcasts at thegrio.com. The Dear Culture podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Blue Salusma and co-produced by Taji Sr., Brenda Alexander, and Antonio Thompson. See you next week. <laughs>